I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. This talk is called Ordinary Mind is the Way. Ordinary Mind is the Way. The whole world continues to laugh at you, sleepwalking through the radiance, telling stories based on the images projected where. The mind is a trip. Stop following the boring river flow of conceptualization, dramatization. There is much more interesting work on the other side of thought, like watching shooting stars stream forth from everything. Mumon Khan, Case 19, Ordinary Mind is the Way. Joshu once asked Nansen, what is the way? What is the correct path of practice? Nansen answered, ordinary mind is the way. Ordinary mind is the way. And Joshu continued, well then, should we direct ourselves towards it or not? Practical question. If ordinary mind is the way, should we direct ourselves towards it or not? Nansen replied, if you try to direct yourself toward it, you go away from it. Joshu continued, well, if we don't try, how will we know it's the way? If we don't try, how will we know it's the way? Nansen, who is being quite generous with his explanations, continues as well. He says, the way does not belong to knowing or to not knowing. Knowing is illusion. Not knowing is blankness. When you realize the way, it is as vast and boundless as outer space. How then can there be a right and a wrong in the way? At these words, Joshu's mind opened. Here we are in the midst of a 10-day session. It's day three or four, I think. Here we are in the midst of our lives, practicing the way of non-attainment, waiting for our enlightenment, trying to get it, concentrating the mind, inquiring into the mind, loving, resisting, being kind, forgiving, rejoicing, playing, flowing, and seeming to get stuck. Oh, ordinary mind. Oh, ordinary mind is the way. Oh, ordinary mind, open your true face and reveal it to me. Let me see you. If you try to grasp it, if you turn practice into a thing, turn insight, awakening into a thing, it eludes us. You seem to move away from it. Like moon reflected in the well, 
The one who sees it blocks it. All our efforting, all our efforting fueled by a lifetime of habits. If I do it right, I will get what I want. Fueled by the sense of, I'm not enough. Once I get this, master that, have this experience, then I will be satisfied. I'll be enough. I'll know what to do. I'll be safe. Show me, show me, dear teacher, where am I stuck? And I will correct it. I will do it better, harder, more wholeheartedly. If I let go, if I really let be, if I let myself be simple, if I enjoy meditation, if I just rest with what is, how will I know it's the way? How will I become enlightened just being present? If nothing I do will do, what do I do? If nothing I do will do, what do I do? The Buddha lived out his own version of this koan, practicing for seven years, very intensely mastering many different techniques, ending up as an ascetic, his body becoming very frail, bones visible through the skin. At this point, he was trying this method and he cites it in the Pali Canon. I thought, suppose that I, clenching my teeth, and pressing my tongue against the roof of my mouth were to beat down, constrain, and crush my mind with my awareness. So, clenching my teeth and pressing my tongue against the roof of my mouth, I beat down, constrained, and crushed my mind with my awareness. Just as a strong man seizing a weaker man by the head or the throat or the shoulders would beat him down, constrain, and crush him in the same way I beat down, constrained, and crushed my mind with my awareness. As I did so, sweat poured from my armpits. And although tireless persistence was aroused in me, an unmuddled mindfulness established, my body was aroused and uncalm because of the painful exertion. But the painful feeling that arose in this way did not invade my mind or remain. But he realized that was not the way, that was not the way, (laughs) but part of his way, right? He tried it. He needed to try it to see, oh, something about that was a little off. And then weak and beginning to doubt his approach, he had this simple memory arise from childhood. So... You know, that's an interesting thing, too. It's not like this simple memory arose from childhood at the beginning of his search. And he's like, oh, that's the way I want to pursue. It was after seven years of trying many different methods, practicing with many different teachers, receiving um, the seal to teach those various methods, straining, trying everything he could. He has this simple memory from childhood arise of innocence, of simple happiness, of unprovoked satisfaction. He remembered. I recall once my father was working 
and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. Then, quite withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from unskillful mental qualities, I entered and remained in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. Could that be the path to awakening? Then following on that memory came the realization, that is the path to awakening. I thought, so why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities? So why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities? I thought, I am no longer afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities. But it is not easy to achieve that pleasure with a body so extremely emaciated. Suppose I were to take some solid food, some rice and porridge. So I took some solid food, some rice and porridge. And then he resolved to sit um, under the Bodhi tree, but sitting you know, based in this memory, sitting, allowing himself to enjoy meditation, to enjoy the present moment, to sink in, and then see what happens. Are you afraid of the simplicity, the happiness of just sitting and being? Are you afraid of this simplicity, this pleasure, this delight, this joy, this contentment, this peace, in just sitting and being? At this stage in Sashin, many of us are beginning to recognize some of the underlying fixed beliefs that have shaped our hearts, habits, lives, that I'm not good enough, I don't know what to do, I need your love, approval, appreciation in order to be safe. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. People are judging me. I am in control. I know what to do. I should know what to do. I am right. Something terrible is going to happen. Other people are wrong. I'm failing. It's possible to make a mistake. I can control how others feel about me. There is something wrong with me. That's from a list of fixed beliefs by Byron Katie. And I think they're called universal fixed beliefs and I hear them often in Sashin. I hear them in my own mind. Left alone with ourselves in the present moment, we can see how we've been carved, molded, formed by these various beliefs, these shoulds, oughts. We call them fixed beliefs because they usually are unquestioned. They are often so, we are often so identified with them that we don't really realize that they come and go, just like all other thoughts. They are often associated or feel 
connected to tense areas in the body, places in the body that we habitually avoid, don't want to feel. What does it mean to believe a thought? What is the actual direct experience of encountering a fixed belief? What does it feel like to believe a thought, to identify with a thought? number of people when describing thinking and identifying with thinking or apparent identification use this hand gesture. Various versions of it, (laughs) but it's often a clenching, a holding, a pulling, a grabbing. Uchiyama has this phrase, open the hand of thought. And so we can start to familiarize ourselves with that internal experience of grabbing a hold of some thing that's arising in our internal experience. So sometimes it might be a thought that has words, or sometimes it's an image, or sometimes it's just a, a sense, and there's a kind of clenching, a getting small, a curling up, a holding. Open the hand of thought. What does that feel like experientially? What is it like to recognize the clenching and to release, relax, let go? This isn't easy. This isn't easy. It's like, oh yeah, why aren't I just opening the hand of thought? Why aren't I just opening all of these holding, clenching, (laughs) grabbing areas? Some of these beliefs are buried under other beliefs or we've spent our whole lives constructing a self around a particular belief that's usually associated with a core wound, that it's really threatening to the whole ego complex, our whole sense of self, to even go near it, let alone attempt to let it go. So we meet ourselves where we are. We sit with the discomfort of believing a thought or belief and we sit in the discomfort of not believing it. Which one is more uncomfortable? For if I didn't believe this thought, if I didn't believe this fixed belief, if I wasn't identified with this clenching, this tension in my abdomen, this tension in my back, if I wasn't trying to get rid of it or basing my whole moment off of it, who would I be? Who would you be without that thought, that belief?
left alone with these uncomfortable sensations, left alone in the unknown, right? Because that's another side of it. We know reality based on these beliefs. Our whole lives, as long as we can remember, reality has been shaped by these beliefs. So to even encounter them nakedly, openly, is, is stepping into beyond our knowing of ourselves, beyond our knowing of the world reality. It's challenging everything that we've assumed up to now. And so th- we call that the mystery. Perhaps, though, it is our entrance into the vast, boundless sky of mind's nature. What do you do when nothing you do will do? What do you do when it feels impossible to feel when it feels impossible to let go or be with. Chosen Roshi always says to me at this point, lean into the help of the ancestors. Pray, affirm your vows, practice loving kindness, patience, gratitude, stay with the practice. Simple presence, companion yourself. Let be with tenderness, take refuge, be yourself, live your life. Let your life live you. So let's revisit the koan and remember what Joshu did. So Joshu was revealing his fixed beliefs through his questions. He reveals first that he believes he knows how to get what he wants. He just applies effort. He just needs the right tool and he will get it. And his teacher says, no, no, no. That strategy isn't going to work here. Well, surely it will, Joshi says. There there must be something I can do. I've been able to do, do, do my entire life. I've gotten this far in practice. And so his teacher lets him feel, lets him sit in the suffering of that wanting, lets him really know from the inside that there's something to do. There's something to do. I need to do something. Something is not right. I am not all right. He lets Joshu feel the burden of this belief, the suffering of separation, the clenching, the and then nonsense very quietly, very subtly opens another path 
the path of the sky, of outer space so vast and boundless, the path of inner space so vast and boundless, the path of ordinary mind is the way so vast and boundless, not limited by your ideas of right and wrong, of self and other, of deluded and enlightened, not limited by any of your limiting beliefs, anything that appears fixed within you. It's like a teacher saying, well, are you aware? Are you aware? Like, check for yourself right now. Are you aware? How do you know? Are you aware you are aware? Hmm. Awareness doesn't belong to you. It's been functioning through you, giving you life, animating this body and mind since the moment you were born. It's been with you through childhood, through adolescence, through various failed attempts to find love and satisfaction. It doesn't leave when you get angry. It didn't leave you when you drank too much. It didn't leave you when you hit rock bottom. It's been with you when other people laughed, was there when your mother died, when you didn't know what to do, when it felt like everything was wrong. It was with you through the various ways you have tried to get it right. Are you aware? How do you know? Awareness doesn't flinch when the mind appears to get lost in thought. Awareness doesn't lose faith in you when the body seems to fall asleep during zazen. Awareness can take the shape of a single fingernail so specific and detailed. Awareness can form around a single thought. And awareness is as vast and boundless as the sky free, embracing, supporting life, giving life to life. Are you aware? Recognize awareness free from thought and belief. Yet like the sky and its clouds, thoughts and beliefs move freely through awareness. Awareness unhindered remains constant, bright, spacious, aware. Muman's poem in response to the koan, Ordinary Mind is the Way. Hundreds of flowers in spring, the moon in autumn, a cool breeze in summer and snow in winter, when idle thoughts don't stick in the mind, this, this is your best season. I want to read a passage now from Lisa Cairns, who is a non-dual teacher. I appreciate her style of teaching. It's very direct and immediate. Sometimes some of the language from the Zen chants and stories can get bogged down by cultural references that are just outside of our knowledge and poetic images. So I appreciate being able to hear from teachers who are speaking directly from 
the nature of mind to the nature of our minds. Lisa's story a little bit, she was a seeker. She's a contemporary teacher, so she's still alive and teaching. She was a seeker. She studied Buddhism. She learned meditation. She eventually went to India to study with non-dual teachers there. She had a pretty um, difficult childhood and was very serious about seeking relief from suffering. She was very serious about awakening enlightenment. That's what she was interested in. And she says one day during a meditation retreat, which is a lot more loose, it sounds like, than Sashin, she was feeling a little frustrated and skipped meditation to get some banana fritters. And while eating banana fritters, her mind opened. <laughs> Can happen anywhere. <laughs> Chosen has made um, this reference that koans are like ticking time bombs. And this applies to any practice that we do seriously. Inquiry, shikantaza, silent illumination, presence, any awareness practice really. That when we really take them up and practice with them and struggle with them and let them into the most intimate places within us, they will eventually open. And we can't control when and we can't control what they will reveal. And it is often actually the case when we aren't looking, when we aren't trying so hard, like when we're walking across the parking lot or after Sashin, or for many residents, it's sometimes when someone takes a vacation <laughs> that the mind opens or, or that that ticking time bomb goes off. And many teachers remind us that for most people, awakening is subtle and gradual shifts. We look back at who we were two months, two years, a decade ago and see, wow, that reactivity just isn't there in the same way. I'm more relaxed in my body. Or that anxiety, it just doesn't seem to come up as much. Or there's more space in my mind. Or my experience of myself is so different. My thoughts aren't as sticky. Actually, my mind is a lot more quieter. There's more peace. I like people. I've met so many practitioners who that's what they say when they say, you know, it surprised me about practice. I actually like people. <laughs> and what is that, right? We're able to be more intimate with ourselves and there's not that like constant, are you judging me? Am I better than you? You know, and it's just like, oh, I can actually be with another human being and like not feel like totally afraid. And, and then you like them. And maybe you also like yourself. So for some practitioners, there are more momentous shifts or recognitions, ones that we remember as seemingly uh, distinct before and after. For once we see or experience a fundamental truth directly, it can't be unknown. And this is the same with many realizations, insights, and awakenings on the path. To have an insight into the nature of mind, 
self and suffering is by no means the end of practice. We then practice that insight, live it, keep it open, or the old habits of mind and identifying with our suffering thoughts will return. So here's Lisa. This section is called Ecstatic. There seemed to be a person here who was suffering and didn't like life, that didn't like who she was and always felt uncomfortable. There was something hurting in the torso. That person seemed to question what she thought she knew about life and what she thought she knew about her suffering. The more and more that happened, the less and less she seemed to know about life and what was happening. There seemed to be a point where it stopped happening for her anymore, and that person that suffered disappeared. All that was left was love for what is, which had been there before, but the focus was always on the person and what the person knew about themselves in the world. Then there was this body that carried on acting in this world, carried on with its beautiful and strange conditioning, but it was no longer for anybody anymore. It was no longer me in relationship with what I knew. There wasn't this constant me, my life, what this means, what is is it going to do, what what should I do, Where, where should I go? It was just this. And this is ecstatic to be, ecstatic because it is. If freedom is truly wanted, which is not an individual thing, then the heart of the individual person has to be ripped out. Because everything you think you know about life has to be questioned. Everything you've been taught about importance and right and wrong begins to crumble. I found that I lost knowing who I was anymore. That sounds really weird. I just lost myself. There was something that had always been there, still there, but it no longer belonged to somebody. It was just happening. There was this energetic change where I was looking at the world inside the body, and it was almost like I was watching myself in the brain, experiencing life. It was like I was up here in my head. Then in what was happening, the dream was more important of what I was imagining others to think of me, what I wanted to portray myself to be. It was just up here in my head. And then the energy just stopped and it went back into what was happening. There's this really beautiful quote from a film called Her. Now, I'm just going to make up this quote to suit myself, but it's similar to the real one. There is this couple, she's a computer and he's a human, and this computer has been given the ability to evolve. Because she is an operating system of the computer, she can evolve. She goes through this whole drama of falling in love and all these different things in the film. She begins to experience wanting, wanting lots of things. She has a lover that is human, and she begins to explore that. And then she begins to suffer, really suffer. 
She then begins to fall in love with lots of other humans, and she begins to have lots and lots of lovers. There's this conversation with her and her original lover after she's been through this massive journey. He says to her, the computer, why are you leaving me? Because, she says, she has to leave now. And she says, the reason I'm leaving you is because it's like I've been reading the story of our love, and I love the story of our love so much that I've begun to read it really, really slowly. And the slower and slower I read it, the bigger and bigger the gaps become between each word until they've become infinite space. And this is where I reside now. She disappeared into her story. It's like you disappear into this. Before I was telling the story of me, of Lisa, 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 constantly. Stories of what she's done, where she's been, where she's going, what she's doing, who likes her, who doesn't like her, what the problem is, why psychologically she's suffering, and when she's going to be enlightened. It was so here in the head all the time. Then more and more, the story of who I was got questioned, and something happened where it cleared. Who you truly are dissolves back into everything. You fall out of yourself. It's no longer that you're hiding behind the head and the stories anymore, or that you're in relationship with the world. You are the world. You are everything. It's no longer you having to deal with the world and you in relationship with other. It's a dissolving back in, and you completely disappear. This is happening for nobody. It's happening in absolute stillness because without that story, who is this happening to? It's just perfectly still. It's absolutely empty. That stillness is so incredibly beautiful. It's who you've always been. It's just been focused on that person going backwards and forwards and back and forwards and back and forwards in the head. It's everything. Everything is what you've always been. You've always been everything. The longing for love is really a longing for home. But we believe that home is in the flow. And this is why non-duality has nothing to teach. It's just trying to constantly point to what it's not. Mind can spend hours in trying to convince another that it's right. It can spend lifetimes trying to put a certain number in the bank. It can spend a lifetime trying to get love from a husband and it will always fail because the only love is what is. And that's absolute love because everything's always been embraced and appearing in what is. Please continue to trust the practice that you're doing. Call on the help of the ancestors. Sit in their vows. The Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, they all took this vow to help all beings awaken. And this includes you. So call on them to help. This act of genuinely asking for help is what Joshi was doing in the Ordinary Mind Koan. Asking his teacher, getting more intimate with his doubt and confusion, and then asking, asking from that place. 
To ask for help is an act of surrendering that I know I'm right mind. And for a moment, settling into receptivity, receiving the love and support of the ancestors of the universe of awareness itself. The universe has also been praying for you, to you, asking you to put down the weight of your aloneness. Love is here in full measure. As a great mystic once said, enlightenment is what happens when all that is left of us is love. May we each have great faith in the beauty and wonder of our lives. May our vows deepen and clarify as we realize the Buddha way together.